What's up, everybody? Welcome back to One on One with me, Christian Harlow. I hope everybody's having uh, fun with the show thus far. I've been having a really good time. I've been interviewing some really fun people. It's been awesome. I've had, uh, I mean, Sholo Emanuelina, Paul Walter Hauser, Ed Hurwitz, Schlossberg, and uh, Josh Heeldon talking Cobra Kai. That was a lot of fun, man. And uh, thank you guys so much for everybody who's been involved um, in the show and giving me all the support. I-, I can't thank you enough. As you know, when it comes to like SEN and and those other shows, whether it's the uh, Inner Geekdom show, which we're very happy about, whether it's the Coming Up Next with Jen Sturger and Brad Gilmore, uh, those shows are very dependent on the Streamlabs and Super Chats and stuff. And this show and all my movies with Dan Merle is very dependent on you guys signing up to uh, Apple Podcasts, subscribing, leaving a comment, rating, helping us boost up into those uh, ratings and, and getting us in the top charts. And you have been doing that. So thank you. Now, I'm switching it up this week because my my goal is to get, I mean, uh, get people that we haven't talk to in a little bit also not just people that are uh, starring in these shows i want to get some people that you guys have uh, been asking about and i've been asking about where the hell have they been what have they been doing and this particular individual coming in today uh i got very close she was the producer of our show on schmoes no we would say that she was the one that actually got us organized. And instead, it wasn't on uh, crayons and paper anymore. It was actually documents. And we, and we knew what we were doing. We implemented her strategy after she left. But that's the question. What has she been doing since she left? I want to know. I'm going to have the conversation with her today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Schmoville, Miri Jettikin. <laughs> Hello. How are Hi. you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, it's it's great to see you again. Haven't seen great. you in a bit. Uh, we talked briefly. I think it was like maybe like a month or two ago. I have lost all track of time. Yeah, me too. We talked briefly, <laughs> and, and you know, we had a conversation, kind of catch up, and and we we have, I think, over the course, you know, it's been crazy. I think it's been like three years since you were the producer of the show, something like that. It's nuts. Yeah, it's 2017. Yeah, so it's a. <laughs> Wow, it flies, man. So, um, well, let's you know, let's let's get into this. I wanna I wanna talk about it because you, the first thing is you just you and I obviously met through um being on uh, on certain shows together and uh, we were on movie talk and stuff together and then we we decided you were a guest on Schmoes for a while and then you became the producer of the show and you first of all it was a very dude-driven show with a lot of uh, sophomoric humor, and I can promise you that nothing's changed on my end. <laughs> but why? what was it about the show that you decided that you would uh, that you wanted to come on and, and be a part of it? Um, you know, that's a great question. I think Schmoes always had, like, a very unique camaraderie and authenticity, um, and I loved the blend of knowledgeability and like, like just nerd, like the intense movie nerd frequency that wasn't taking itself too seriously. Because I think a lot of the other shows at the time um, that I was privy to or had been guest a guest on or just a part of really took it a bit too seriously for what they were doing. Like we're not curing cancer. We're talking about movies. Yeah, There should be knowledgeability and there should be like illumination and, 
you know, discovery, but it should be fun and not take itself too seriously. And I think that Schmoes always did a really good job of that. And you can't fake the, you can't fake the relationships. Like, I think there was a, that's what I mean when I say authenticity. I think there was like a just genuine like friendship. Yeah. And I think that that's why, obviously, I think that that's why you fit in very well because of that. And I think that we were able to transfer that over. And to be completely honest with you, that's one of the reasons and I've been pretty vocal about it of why I stopped talking about this type of stuff um, because people took it so serious. It's like, I felt like the world in general is so serious and movies should be like an escape. And people were talking about it. Like it was like world news. And, 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 and by that, I think you and I are both not saying that people shouldn't be passionate about movies and shouldn't be believe in movies. We're just saying like, when you're talking about them, they're movies and we should have fun and you should be able to goof around, you know? Agreed. So, um, all right. So you, you wind up, can you tell me? Well, first of all, for maybe people who didn't who didn't know and haven't told why why the decision to step down? Because you hosted the show. I mean, you managed managed you produced the show for um, at least a year, a year and a half, uh, and then you went to comic cons, did a bunch of stuff with us. What was yeah. the decision um, to? Because I remember that. I remember when I got the text and I was like, uh, "I gotta have a conversation." And I said, "Can you tell me now?" And you said, "Don't pressure me. I'll tell you later." <laughs> um, what was the decision to to kind of step away? Uh you know, I just couldn't stand working with you anymore, Christian. I'm just That's what I'm trying to get to, I, and, I, and I understood. So, um, you know, I was getting um, more of like a full-time opportunity. I think, I'm trying to remember what the trajectory was. I think I was already kind of burning out on Movie Talk in general. Yeah. And I was sort of like in a pre-contemplative state of like, what am I going to actually do with the rest of my life or not the rest of my life, but I just was having some like career, just some career reflection. And what I ended up doing was uh, shortly after I left Schmoes, I worked at Uproxx for a while and that went on for a while. Um, but I went back to school. I got my master's in clinical psychology okay, and um, you know, started accruing hours towards licensure, which I'm still doing because yeah. you need 3000 hours to be a licensed therapist. Wow. So I'm now an associate marriage and family therapist Yeah. and I work full time for a teen residential mental health treatment center called paradigm. And I'm the director of strategic partnerships. So basically what I do is like, um, I'm sort of like the brand ambassador in some ways. Like I message what we do to other, um, practitioners in the mental health community to schools, um, therapists, psychologists, doctors, um, and basically sort of build our network of referrals because a lot of what happens in mental health is referral based. Yeah. Um, therapists get a lot of their business out of referrals and, you know, we are a 30 to 45 day residential treatment center. So most of the kids that come into our program are in need. They're having a crisis. There's like an, a level of acuity that requires residential. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I picked mental health after a long, long time of like really wanting to help people and wanting to give back and not ever really knowing why or how. And then I just sort of found this path. So, where did, so yeah. So how how did you find that path? Because like like you said, you were I know that you were doing some stuff, uh, obviously, with HitFix when it was around. You were you were working on on scripts and working on films. At what point does that transition come come into to where you say, all right, because that's everything you just said, the amount of hours that you have to put in your mom, 
You know, there's there's a lot of time that you have to put into this. So how do you first of all, how do you decide you want to go down that path? Second, how do you balance? I don't know if I have the answer to the second one. OK, I'm still figuring that out. Okay. Um, I, I think it was something I wanted to do for a really long time. I think the reason I was drawn to journalism and film and storytelling is because I'm fascinated by the human condition. Mm -hmm. And I'm fascinated by all the ways in which we are alike and all the ways in which we are so vastly different. Um, I always felt the need to do something that would impact people positively, um, that would help people and empower people. And I think I did that for a long time in my career, talking about film and, you know, being on camera and sort of having a personality that was like, a bridge for some people. And I got a lot of, you know, where I felt that the most was actually with Schmoes and the interactivity with the fans was also something that was very meaningful to me. And I think in retrospect, might have been one of those like seeds that was planted where I realized like, really, I want to interact with people and I want to hold space for people and hear people's stories. And the beautiful thing about Schmoes is that we had the opportunity to do that with our fans in a lot of ways. Um, that was meaningful to me. And then I, it, it was sort of like a, I started thinking about, okay, how can I help people? Like, what can I do? And I started sort of going online and researching life coaching and like that sort of thing. And it just didn't feel substantive enough. I really wanted to get more of an education in uh, what makes people tick. Yeah. And I've always been interested in psychology. I've always been interested in, um, you know, our socio-emotional learning and, and how we are and, all of the things that happen to us and how trauma impacts us. And so I started researching um, just like psychology programs, thinking like there's no way I'll be able to do a master's degree. I didn't do my undergrad in psych. And I started realizing like, oh, wait, there are actually vocational programs where I can study and train to be a therapist yeah. and get a master's. And um, I looked into a couple of different programs and I found one that was local that I really liked that was really uh, social justice oriented, which is a passion of mine and, um, you know, really saw mental health through that sort of lens. And it was at a time when I think mental health was starting to become more talked about. Um, you know, September is Suicide Prevention Month. It's like yeah. right happening right now. And I think we're starting to destigmatize mental health a lot more. And, I just started to make connections between all the passions I had with filmmaking and storytelling and mental health and how connected they are. And that's, I don't know if I even answered your question. You did. You absolutely did. It's a, so that, that was kind of the inspiration for you to say, this is what I want to do. I want to get involved with this. And you found yourself a program to, to do that. And so, so then when you look at the program, because I know how you are, you, 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 you looked at it and then probably made a whole plan as far as this is what I'm going to need. This is the time I'm going to need. This is how I'm going to put it all together. And it should take me X amount of time before I do this. And that's why I asked about the balance side of it, because I also know how involved you are, you know, as far as, as family and everything goes too. So when you do that, you have to like maneuver everything together. So was it difficult to do all of it or um, did you find a way to do it once, you know, you, you kind of went on that path? Um, I think that's a, I think it's a, it's a multifaceted answer to a multifaceted question. I think it is difficult and it is challenging. As you know, I'm a hyper organized, sorry, my dogs are like all floating around here off screen, taking my attention. Um, I think that it is difficult. I think I'm very organized and I respond to anxiety about things being overwhelming and difficult by really over preparing and planning. Um, 
it is a lot to juggle. Um, but I'm, I, I knew it was going to take a couple of years. I knew licensure was going to take another couple of years. And, you know, there's this expression I love by the inch, it's a cinch by the art. It's hard. Mm -hmm. So I think I just kind of focus in on like, okay, what's right in front of me. What do I need to do? Like over the next, like, Oh, I froze. Didn't I? Yeah, but I can still hear you though. Okay. Um, what do I need to do over the next like six months, three months, year, that sort of thing. Um, and just kind of keep my eyes on the prize and just sort of one foot in front of the other and also flexible because I think goals change. And I think, um, yeah, I think, I think it's okay for your goals to like shift a little bit and change. And so, and did they, did you find them shifting as, as you were getting involved with all this, like to where you started to learn like new education and stuff as you're going through it, but does your path, I don't know, I guess stay on the same path, but you, you're, like you said, you're aiming towards different goals. Yeah, I think your my goals, I mean, my overall, like, you know, 36,000 foot goal of like wanting to help people remains the same. Um, How I go about doing that maybe has changed a little bit and how I can, you know, bridge the fact that I have been on camera and that I am good at communicating ideas and that I do love to write. How can I parlay that into helping people? Um, And I realized like I want to wear many hats. I've always been that way. And I've always um, found like multifaceted approaches to doing things. And yeah, I think my goals have changed. I think the populations I work with are a little different than maybe I thought they would be, or my perception of the kind of therapy I wanted to practice changed as I learned more about like different modalities and different ways of working with people. I think that's kind of normal for most people who go through these kinds of programs. You sort of find your, you find your feet, you find like your same as how we like you become an online personality or a television personality or a host. Like you sort of find your voice, you find your way of connecting. And even like listening to you talk to me right now, like a lot of what you do as an interviewer is therapy. Like it's a very, there's a very similar like skill set in how we listen and how we mirror and like actively engage with people we talk to. So there was like a natural overlap there for me when I started actually doing therapy, I started realizing like, I've actually already done this in a lot of ways, like interviewing people and really getting them to talk about things that matter to them is a form of therapy. So, yeah, well, that's what you and I always used to talk about when we talk, when we had guests on. It was we, the thing that drove you and I nuts was when there were people who would interview and not listen. And they just had the next question that was kind of set up uh, on their, you know, their, their notebook or whatever. And, they, and it was, oh, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And they go into the thing and they're not listening. And you're absolutely right. Like my the reason I did this show in the first place when and I just started when I when I the first version of this was when I did like the Harloff podcast and you were my very first guest that I ever had on that show. I know that's right. And then I turned that into one-on-one with Christian Harloff and I was with Collider. And then I wanted to bring it back because that's the stuff that I like to do because I do like to learn more about people and not just like, I knew that you and I would probably talk about movie stuff for maybe two or three minutes here today. And then because I'm fascinated by what you're doing right now and like you said, you found something in particular in this new field that you really went towards. And that, and that was that that was the mental health side of it. Or there's there other things inside of all of that that you really gravitated towards. You mean like the field of mental health in general? 
No, but when you were studying, like you said, oh. like there were things that you wanted to focus on that you wanted that you like, like you said, there were things that in general, like the, the mental health part of it and going into the social justice and all of that, that's what attracted to to it in the first place. But but going off of what you said, there was stuff that you learned that you said, oh, wait a minute, I want to actually even go after that even more so. Yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what I meant. The first thing that comes to my mind and probably the most prominent is trauma. Um, I think that we're starting to cult collectively as a culture kind of understand that the experiences we have when we're young and growing up and forming shape how we relate to each other. They shape how we perceive the world around us and our personalities and what makes us tick, even our interests. And so I started to, you know, when I was studying, I was learning about trauma and learning about different types of trauma, how trauma memories are stored in the brain. Um, I didn't realize that I had such a fascination with the human brain until I started studying a little bit, you know, neurobiology and psychopharmacology and like, how and why do we feel certain things when certain neurotransmitters are fired in our brains? Like all of these things kind of started to shape my understanding of how I wanted to work with people. Um, and I also realized that, you know, the, the field of mental health in the West is really only like about 150 years old, maybe if that, but the practice of, of healing, you know, healing rituals and, you know, shamanism and all of these things that other cultures and other places have been, you know, engaging in for thousands of years, you know, our understanding of the human psyche in the West is like relatively limited. And I started to kind of explore, you know, while I was studying how, how has mental health been sort of right. framed in other cultures and I'm kind of getting pretty esoteric, but oh, I like it. I was studying um, what I started realizing is that, you know, in order to legitimize itself, the field of psychology traditionally in Europe and then, you know, here in America uh, followed a very medical model. And that's still true today. You know, we still have to diagnose in order to, um, you know, apply for insurance for our clients, those of us who take insurance. And there's this medical model that involves pathologizing a lot of what people experience. And I'm a big believer in moving away from that in depathologizing mental health and as a result, sort of destigmatizing it. And I think it's changing. I think, you know, you have celebrities and athletes that are starting to really speak out about things that they've been diagnosed with or problems that they've had, being more open and transparent about their childhood traumas, sexual abuse, physical yeah. abuse, that sort of thing. And I think it's really powerful when we can start to understand that like medical issues, you know, people who struggle with certain things, it is the same in many ways as having like a chronic medical physical condition. We've done this weird thing where we like separate the mind and the soul and the spirit from the body, but they're all very connected. And so to circle back to what I was saying about trauma, um, somatic therapies that utilize like more of a physical sensation model are becoming really popular now because we're starting to really make the connection between uh, how we experience something emotionally and mentally, and then how it how it's is stored in our body. Right. Um, so therapies like EMDR and somatic experiencing and tapping, and you know, these are all things that we're using to like use the body as a way to unlock, you know, stored up trauma. So I learned all of this stuff, and it blew my mind and. You know, I was making all kinds of personal connections and connections in my family of origin and starting to understand the way I was and why I was the way I was. And I've been doing therapy for years, but like 
to learn it on this level was new and really exciting. So, well, well that's what I wanted to ask because, um, and again, if you want to, if you want to not talk about this, you already posted about it, then that, that's fine. But I wanted to ask because I, I remember, and I reached out to you, it was like a year or two because I saw a post that you had put on, I think it was Instagram. Um, and it was, it was around the time when Big Little Lies was on and yeah. you had posted this really, uh, empowering and just, uh, honest and raw post. And I, I texted you immediately and I just said, I, I thought it was super brave. I thought it was, I thought it was one of the strongest things I had seen in, in general from where you had to go inside of this place, um, to, to kind of, to be able to put that out there. Um, when you talk about experiences like that, you know, when trauma and, and, and certain things, is that, is it a mixture of things that have happened to you in your past where that particular post, do you want to help other people who have been in those types of relationships? And, and uh, is that kind of where you're pulling from uh, other people that you've dealt with personally, you mentioned family and other things that you want to do is that it's, it's like a hodgepodge of all of it. I think it's a hodgepodge. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the, the post you're referring to is how, um, you know, I had been in an abusive relationship and it's certainly been like a pattern in my life. And I think it's a pattern in a lot of people's lives. Um, and I certainly resonate with clients who um, experience or have experienced abuse in any form. Um, and also uh, it, it is a hodgepodge. It's definitely a hodgepodge. I think you know, there, there is an older model of like psychoanalysis that people have in their mind of like a Freudian sort of therapist talking to somebody on a couch or the person is lying on the couch and talking and the analyst is sitting there and not saying a word and sort of very neutral. And I think there's a misconception around therapy that that's what it is. And it's, it's really evolved far beyond that. There are still people who practice in that way and it worked, that still works for some people. And I don't want to like diss any modality that people find impactful or helpful. Um, but yes, for me, there is this notion of the wounded healer that's really powerful that um, I embrace and try to embody as a therapist, which is that I'm in the room and I, uh, my experiences are in the room and to deny the, that reality would actually be doing a disservice not only to the client, but to myself. Is that, a, is that, a, is that, that's another thing. Again, when I hear that, it's, 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 a, it's a strong choice and I don't know my personal thing, the way that, and I don't know if that means me, what it makes me, but I, if I'm in a room with somebody that I don't know very well, but I know that I want to help them, but using, do you ever get worried by using your personal experiences on people that maybe you don't know well enough that you're sharing? You, I don't know. I guess it's the same thing as you, you're doing, you're doing it right now with people who are watching it. So, but, but, I, but when you're talking to somebody so intimately in, in the room and learning about them and sharing it, cause I happen to agree with you. That was one of the main things for me when I was a kid, I did therapy and I was always one of these things where I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm just talking and again, not against anything on that, that type of practice, but I never got anything back. And I feel like I was just talking to someone who would then analyze everything that I just said. Um, but what you're saying is by using those experiences and having the conversations that we, that you use during your interview times, but do you ever get worried that you don't know exactly who you might be sharing your stories with? Well, I should clarify it to say that like in a therapy session, I'm not necessarily talking about my experiences. In fact, most of the time I don't, I almost never do Okay. Um, because really the focus is on the client and the focus is on their experience. I'm referring more to like, how do my past experiences shape the way I do therapy. I see. Like, so, so it can shape your, your kind of diagnosis and stuff of things that you've gone through. 
Yeah. And you know, there's something we call transference, which is like when a client comes in and, and has a story or an experience that really resonates with you because you had a similar thing, there is an inherent transference that happens where you could project a lot of your own feelings and experiences onto them. And it's really important as a therapist, if you want to be ethical, to always be very vigilant and hyper aware of how that might show up in the room, how that might impact your therapy. Um, you know, I believe that if you're a therapist, you should be in therapy yourself. You should have a really strong either supervision team or consulting therapist that you work with who you can run things by. That's obviously upholding confidentiality because there's all mm -hmm. kinds of rules about that, important rules about that. Um, so it's not so much about me relaying my personal experiences, but how the imprint of the things I've experienced shape the way I do therapy and, and what it means for me in the room is that I'm just very actively engaged. I'm always like, you know, listening in a therapeutic manner is a, is a different kind of listening. And I think again, speak to like what you do when you talk to people, you're doing a lot of the same stuff. It's active listening. It's you're yeah. taking in body language. You're watching facial expressions. You're noticing little habits or patterns. Like if someone chuckles when they're telling a really sad story or if someone um, starts kind of dissociating and like staring off into the distance, these are, it's all data. It's all yeah. like, it's all stuff to talk about. And um, really the, the, the foundational element for me is I'm always coming from a place of humility and respect and uh, reverence for anybody who is courageous enough to, to come and sit in therapy because oh. no Mona, my dog is, he started growling and I'm like, mm-mm. Right. So anyway, it's, it's really more about like how do all of my experiences and all of my past, the whatever tapestry of my life, how does that impact the way I work and how can I optimize all of those different things to be the best possible, most useful possible therapist I can be. And the other thing too, to remember with therapy is like, it's a relationship. Yeah. And the most important thing is the relationship and you're not going to gel with everybody and not every therapist can work with every client. And it's important as a therapist to know, like, what is my wheelhouse? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are the things I need to work on? Or what are some populations I have a harder time working with or less? What are my unconscious biases? So to me, in order to be a good therapist, it's imperative that we do the work on ourselves, the self-awareness work, the, you know, self-exploration, healing, and know where we are, you know, know when we're burnt out, be able to like, you know, read the cues. Mona, it's like, stop. She's, this is Mona. She's, I, don't I know. love that. Yeah, where's Mona? What, what, what kind of dog is Mona? Where is she? Oh, there she is. Hey, Mona, you want to get interviewed? She wants to be the center of attention. Understood. I mean, I get it. Um, but, you know, so when you, this, I mean, it's all, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it makes a lot of sense as far as where you, because you can relate to certain things. It's, I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it is like having a conversation like this because if I'm, if I'm, oh, as someone's talking, well, that reminds me of something that happened with me. And I can really, I, I think immediately I had Paul Walter Hauser on um, a couple of weeks ago and he was telling this particular story of how his career and life just kind of turned back to one particular moment and immediately made me think of this particular thing that I, that I had. And I was able to relate to that and have that conversation. So yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, when you get out, when you get out of that of the program and you finish up and you, and you get everything done and this sense of accomplishment, obviously, but how do you then transfer that into that now? Okay. Cause the hardest part is then going and finding, sorry, going out and finding clients. 
Well, I have a full-time job. Okay. So, uh, what yeah. else? Yeah. What else? What's the other job? I'm the director of strategic partnership. Oh, that's, what that's what you said. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So that takes up a lot of my time and the, the, the private practice is a slow build. Um, and it's kind of nice that way because I can really, you know, make sure that the clients who come to me are people I can actively work with. Yeah. People who, um, I can make an impact with and, you know, to speak to that relational piece, um, you know, not every client that comes to my door is going to resonate with the way I work and some clients really do. Um, and so it's really just about balancing the two and, um, you know, finding ways to have them complement one another and not detract from one another. Um, and it's, it's actually really been lovely and lovely experience. Like the company I work for, I, I love the people I work with and I really believe in what we're doing. Um, I think teens, you know, our, our COO always says like our teens are a marginalized population yeah. because teenagers are not listened to. They're not taken seriously and they're our future and they have, you know, working with teens, working with teen clients is something that surprised me and made me realize like, I love that population because there is an unfettered, like unbridled honesty that teenagers embody. And there is, um, there is like a real sort of authenticity of experience that teens tend to relay that I find really refreshing. You know, it's like not quite adults, but certainly not children. Right. And it's like this really magical period. So I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm very like um, engaged with the work that I do. It takes up a lot of my life. Yeah. Um, and I feel, I feel really great about the fact that I think the field of mental health itself is growing and expanding. And, there was a time where I was like, I really want to continue, you know, being on camera and writing and having that voice in this field and also helping people and how, what are the different ways I can do that? And I'm starting to realize that like, there are so many avenues that I can take in this field. Uh, you know, I don't like to say like to brand myself, but like there's a position I can take in this field that I think can be helpful to people. Yeah. And the world is changing. It used to be, not too long ago that therapists wanted to maintain a lot of anonymity and a lot of neutrality so that when clients come to them, they don't know that much about them. And that's just not the world we live in anymore. We have Google and yeah. Bing and we have all these we have Facebook and Instagram and there's all these ways for people to find you and learn about you. Do you find that? Do you, have you found that people found uh, like old things that you've done? I mean, it hasn't really come up, but I, but I suspect it's the case. And yeah. I also, think that it would be crazy. I don't like to use that word, but it would be silly for me to, uh, to try and like hide it or, you know, and it's come up in sessions where I've had clients who work in, in, in creative industries and there's an awareness that I have a background in that. And that can be really affirming and can be really helpful. It can also be detrimental. So it's really about like being really mindful about when you do bring yourself into the room, but just speaking generally to like how we obtain information, it's super easy for anybody to find me and find videos I've done and find my schmoes, no stuff. And that's my past. I'm not, you know, I can't erase it. That's, that's, that's part of who I am. That's part of what I bring into the room. So I try to embrace it. And, you know, I I've taken more of a direction in Instagram with like, you know, really utilizing that platform to share some things that I'm learning and that I'm discovering in mental health and, 
things that I have found to be powerful and I'm getting a lot of really great responses. And it's very affirming to know that like, we don't live in a world where people expect therapists to be like not having a life. And for some clients, sorry, my dog, for some clients, I think it's helpful to have more of a blank slate and for other clients, maybe they want to know more. And I don't position myself as an expert in anyone's life. If anyone's coming to me for help, it's because I'm like, I'm like the, you know, you're the director. I'm just like helping you reconfigure the way you understand yourself and giving you tools. Like it's not, I'm not an expert. I don't, I don't position myself that way. Well, see, I mean, again, full-time job, uh, clients on the side that you're building out the private practice and, mm-hmm. and now we get to the point of family and we have, and we have other things fun inside. Not, not that your work isn't fun, but you know what I mean? Like going out and trying to kick back and, and, and relax. When do you, Sometimes. when do you get the opportunity to do that? Um, I, I get opportunities to do it. I, I think it's important, like, especially one of the, um, sorry, one of the really, um, one of the really, uh, powerful things about therapy and about doing this work is really internalizing what self-care means and how that shows up for me. And, you know, I think self-care is one of those terms that's being sort of co-opted by the healthcare and wellness industries to make money. And, you know, so work-life balance is really important. Uh, Exercise, meditation, journaling, rest, seeing friends. You know, this has been a really crazy year like 2020 is i'm waiting for the season finale yeah and it's jumanji yeah or it's like game of thrones and which is a bunch of white walkers and that's it we're done Um, (laughs) not too far off i know right but so so you know speaking to that okay mona you need to go away she's really annoying i'm sorry um it's a vision that it's bonnie somerville dressed as her friend's character that just keeps walking into your apartment like mona go away that's right. So funny. Um, but yeah, I think like this year has been a really interesting year because I'm really busy. The, there's a real demand for like mental health practitioners. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I'm also, you know, we're all also therapists are also all people working in mental health. We're all considered like frontline workers in the sense that like everybody that works at my company, like the therapists are on site. If we have a residential center, people mm-hmm. live there. So um you know, we have to all take care of ourselves. And I think we all have to do a better job of finding work-life balance. And for me, it's sort of like an ongoing thing. I think it involves really what it boils down to is like regularly checking in with myself. Yeah. If I'm starting to feel burnt out or tired, what do I need to do to like not feel that way and not fall off the rails of getting the things done that I need to get done? What is um, the exercise a lot of times? I exercise, yeah. Yeah, that's, like that's- three, three, four times a week. And that, and that's, and that obviously clears up the, I see, that's one of the things that I get. It's I, I've been overworking myself and I know, I know that very, I always do that. I, always do that, I know, but I, but I was, uh, it, it's, it's just, uh, and I have, I have that fucking treadmill is right there. The one that, you know, well, it is, it is, still. it's, it's still there. It's right there. But as you know, back in the day, I used to, I would, I would use it often before the show, uh, my wife uses it way more than I do, um, which is if she if she uses it a lot, but if she used it once, it'd be way more than I do. Um, but I need to be better at that stuff. And I know that's that's one of the things. Um, but 
you know, like other things, other other ways. Because you were, I mean, your your knowledge in film and television was like second to none when you're talking. And that wasn't from just from from research. That was because you were you were a full on fan of. A lot of yeah, so that's that's kind of where I wanted to ask you. Are there still things that you're are you watching certain things? I thought of you immediately when I don't know if you saw this thing. I talked about it a little while ago. Um, they did the I think it was Dane Cook actually that did the he did this. Um, yeah, the fast time. Did you watch it? I haven't seen the whole thing, but oh I'm crap! It looks amazing. It's, did you see any what Shia LaBeouf did? Did you see? Oh, he's in the back of the car, puffing a joint at Trolley. It is incredible of what he does not just because of the fact he's smoking a joint but he's so like locked in um yeah. but, but anyway yeah what's that we've talked about shia a lot yeah uh, well you know i've t- i've i've turned to a complete i don't know where the last week where we stood on him when we spoke about it last but I, i'm super 180 with that kid i think he did not like I, what's that you did not like him i love him now I know. uh very talented. Yes, um, you, you're right. I didn't. I did not. I was. I was not a fan of him. I thought that a lot of the stuff he was doing was shtick. I always thought he was talented, but I thought in the big blockbuster movies, it was he. He was kind of phoning it in. I think between Honey Boy and Peanut Butter Falcon, Fury. This. You know, you know what movie he was really good in that was really under underrated was that one with Jessica Chastain. Oh shoot, the one with uh, Tom Hardy. Yeah, there were like bootleggers. And yeah, uh, what, what was that called? Limit. No. What was it called? I don't remember. I'll look it up. But I, I remember Law- Lawless. The Lawless is that the name of it? Lawless, maybe. I, yeah, I, I that think sounds right. That sounds right. That's ringing bells. My, yeah, it was Lawless. It was Lawless. He was uh, really good in that. He was good in that, and that, and that's, uh, and, and you know where he was really good in? He did an interview with, um, for for Hot Ones, and. It was the most layered interview, and he really broke down a lot of his experiences, it, very similar to what we've been talking about on, on the show here today. And it just brought another side to him because um, he was promoting uh, Honey Boy. And you talk about you talk about just going all out and say, this is me. I mean, that's what he did in that movie. But, but besides that, so what are you – have you been watching stuff? Have you been uh, – anything? Okay. Yeah, did you watch all of it? No, I haven't watched all of it, so don't okay. spoil it. But what do you think? I mean, it's what the world needs right yeah. now. The world you- needs this kind of thing. Uh, okay, good. You know why I'm glad that you brought that up because all three of my episodes so far have had I ha- I've had people that were in Cobra Kai or at least talking about Cobra Kai. So now we at least tied it back. I have to find if I have to find a way to bring up Cobra Kai in every interview for as long as this shows. Oh, it's it's it's. It offers so much. I mean, that's a whole other pot. Like, we would have to have a podcast just on Cobra Kai. I would love to. As a um, kid fan, I, I was, you know, very trepidatious when I saw it pop up on Netflix. I was like, oh, dear God, no. Oh, what you went through it. Okay. So you never watched it when it was on YouTube. You you discovered no, it. On- I didn't even know it existed. I was, like, studying psychology. I was, like, in a hole for two years. And then I saw it on Netflix and was, like, um, and then I watched the first episode and was in, like, hook, line, and sinker in wow yeah i mean it's 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 so it's so good and it does it, it's it, between that bill and ted these movies there's there's so many bill and ted yet i won't spoil it but just it's that it's that feeling of there's so much crap going on in the world at the moment that yeah. i need something i i'm jealous of all of you who found Cobra Kai now to experience yeah. it the first time because everything that you just said 
when it came to uh, initially finding out, oh, my God, are they going to ruin uh, Karate Kid? And they don't. They treat it with such respect. Um, and, like, it's such a wonderful way to, like, update it yeah. without, like, bastardizing it. I don't even like that word. But, um, but you know, there's a point, too, to, like, movies and psychology and there's a real natural thread to movies and mental health. And I've been thinking about ways to like bridge those gaps because we are all fascinated by our own experience. Human beings are unique, right? Like we make meaning, which I don't know if a lot of other species do. I I, I would imagine whales probably too, Um, but we can make meaning and we can understand abstract concepts and, and try to make sense of them. And, movies is our, our film is one of the ways we've done that. And there's such a natural connection between the two. Like so much of what we talk about when we talk about film is mental health or psychology or how we operate. What makes us tick? Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask too. Cause we get, I, I got you because, because you are so busy. I got you for a limited time here too. And I, as I was going through all this stuff, I said, as I was like, well, I definitely want to talk about, Miri, because if I don't, if I bring up me, I'm going to get charged by the hour. So I'm not going <laughs> to, no, I'm just kidding. But I was going to say like how, because I think that that's, that's the thing that we, you and I would talk about all the time with, in postings too, is figuring people out that were on the show and pe- uh, people out that we worked with and understanding of people. So I guess the true question is, Miri, how fucked up am I? <laughs> <laughs> You realize this is not, first of all, how we diagnose anyone. And second of all, like on the scale of one to 10, like let's do some scale. Let's do some yes, scale. How up am I? Oh, yes. um, you are not fucked up. Nobody is fucked up. Even, even the most supposedly quote unquote capitalized, italicized, fucked up people. I don't believe in that. I really don't. I think, I think that that's kind of why I go back to trauma. I think that we're all unique in terms of like our inherent neurological structures and genetics that play a factor. And I also think that environment plays a factor and um, there's people who are really suffering and struggling and I'm, I'm a systems person. I tend to look at the world and look at the rise in anxiety and depression and bipolar disorder and suicidality and all of these things. And I think that it's probably a systemic problem. Why are we all struggling with all this stuff? Like I'm, I'm trying to help people, you know, cope with the onslaught of shit that we all have to deal with, particularly this year. And I think it's not, I don't think these issues are going anywhere, but I think there's a bigger systemic piece, which is like, how are we connecting? How are we creating community? How are we constellating healthy relationships with each other? How are we strengthening our communication techniques and like actually, you know, being accountable like i'm seeing like there is a culture of narcissism that that impacts everything and i'm seeing narcissism show up in sessions i'm seeing it show up for like on an individual level i'm seeing it show up on a cultural level and what i mean by that is like this privileging of the individual and the and the personal experience and it's like maybe we need to get back to like you know really taking responsibility for how we show up in the world and how that impacts other people yeah and and also recognize when the problems that we're facing are also systemic. So, you know, to look at a single mother of three who is, you know, living way below the poverty line and working three jobs just to get by and tell her to just, just manifest, right? just like 
imagine your life differently. Like that's a really misguided thing to tell somebody who's struggling with very real systemic oppression and yeah. problems. So I'm a big systems believer, which is where the social justice piece kind of ties in. Makes sense. But let's not talk about narcissism. Let's talk about me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so <laughs> when, narcissism, by the way. It's not? Being self-absorbed is not necessarily narcissism. Oh. Uh, well, I mean, I could talk about narcissism. I'm that's, sure. That's for another day. We can talk about narcissism in movies and how narcissism is, okay. is and celebrated and normalized in film. That's how we link it together. Um, but I did that. Yeah, I, did. I did. I didn't like it. I love what you did there. So, well, you know, there's a lot of, like you said, like for me, when looking into everything kind of going on in the world, what I find myself doing, like I mentioned before, is I just, I bury myself in, in work, you know, and I, I, like I feel like if I'm if I am not doing something, then I am faced with the reality that I'm kind of you know I I really do. And I was talking about this with my wife. Is that there? Collectively, we thought that 2020 is one of the worst years maybe ever, right? In, as far as the world goes, as far as the things that have happened in the world, um, with the virus, with the with the, you know with with the the killing of George Floyd and the riots and everything that had and and you know everything that has happened, the the, the treatment. Everything that's happened this year in general has just been. I mean, you look at now the fires and more and more. It's just like a joke of what 2020 is. However, there are things inside of the year that, if you look at it, can be um, a very positive thing. And that one of those things for me is I've spent more time with my wife and my kids than I normally can do because I'm working from home, so I see them more often. I have more memories. The flip side of that is that now my kids aren't enjoying school the way that they normally would. But yet I get to teach them more and learn with them more and do things more with them. But I find myself, if I'm not working, that I'm constantly looking at, all right, we, when are we going to get out of this? And I feel like I'm banging up against this wall of this imaginary prison, if that makes sense. Totally makes 100% sense. I mean, this is like, this is what I mean when I talk about the collective. Yeah. No matter what our individual experiences are, there is a collective shift right now. There's like a huge transformation happening because I don't want to get political, but you know, this is an election year. There is a global pandemic that has gripped the world for the last six, seven months, eight months, nine months in some countries. Uh, there's economic unrest, there's social unrest. There is a race revolution happening, which in my opinion is long overdue and we still have so much to do um, and a lot of work to do as individuals and collectively as a, as a society. And uh, I think what you're expressing is like a very real like tension that we're all experiencing of like not knowing what's next, not knowing what's around the corner, having had one repeated like traumatic mass event after another um, and, you know, having to like school kids from home and juggle work and navigate relationships in quarantine, like apparently I read something that like the, the filings for divorce and separation have like gone up. I'm yeah. not sure what the number is, but it's gone up. And why is it, what do you think? It's just because people are spending more time with each other. I think that when you have less distractions yeah. and you have less uh, opportunities to be apart, uh, yeah, I think the cracks start to show. And I think people either figure out ways to um, embrace the change and like flow with it and grow with it or kind of come to the realization like, wait a second, we really don't have the same values or we don't want the same things or we've grown apart or whatever. So 
these are really, you know, I have a friend who calls it like it's the year of 2020 vision and like seeing things really clearly mm-hmm. taking the, the veil off of things has seems to have been a theme this year. And it, you know, th- there's transformation because we can't deny some things that have been going on for years, but that a lot of us have had the privilege of denying, like I'm a white person. I have the privilege of moving through the world and not experiencing racism on every level of my experience, the way my friends are who are black and brown or BIPOC, you know, that's something that a lot of people are waking up to for the first time going, Oh my God. Yeah. I know. Even then, like you said, like it's, it's in a million years, you would never want, the way that we got here um, to have happened with George Floyd, obviously losing his life in order for, for that to start all of that, because it's been, it certainly has been, there has been, like you said, long overdue in, in both our opinions, I think too, the fact that it did happen, that it did happen this year. And it, it does. And I also think, and again, with you not to get political, I just, I think that we're in a different place right now we i don't feel like this would have happened a couple of years ago where it feels like the 1960s mm-hmm. you know and and where we were going from the 60s to go up and start to get more you know understanding and appreciation and 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 tolerance of 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 understanding and that for some reason from one way or another is now gone um, and I, and I think that, you know, the fact that a spotlight has been put on it is maybe, you know, it's a, it's a good thing unfo- with an unfortunate way that we got there, if that makes sense. No, it, it makes total sense. I mean, I've heard people argue, which is really annoying, but I've heard people say like, well, you know, George Floyd had a criminal record and shouldn't be a martyr. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, you are missing the point. Like you are so missing the point because yeah. There is no scenario in which what happened to him is at all justifiable or okay or changes the scope of the horror of what happened. And to me, like, I don't know, I think a lot of really valuable conversations have come out of all of this. And I think people, you know, change is is incremental. And, you know, in community psychology, there's this idea of the small win. Yeah. And like when you're trying to change community when you're trying to like change this infrastructure of government or you're trying to, you know, when people criticize like defund and reallocate, well, the reason people are saying that is because what's currently happening is not working. It's breaking down. People are losing their lives. There's trauma, there's violence. It's, it's not a sustainable or acceptable model. And in order for the changes to happen, we can't expect broad sweeping changes to happen all at once, but incrementally, small wins, you know, and if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, which has been around for a long time, it's not just now, um, they have been following an incremental model of progress. And I believe in that. I think that, you know, not everybody loves Biden, you know, Uh, but if they want a more progressive agenda, he's the choice. I'm sorry for you Trump supporters out there, but like, not sorry. Um, He, you know, there's, there's small wins. And I think that I don't know. I'm a believer in that. I'm a believer that Rome, yeah. Rome wasn't built in a day. Well, I also, I mean, I'm wondering though too, from people that you're talking to, whether it's work or your private clients, is that how much the, because politically and everything going on in the world in general, how much that, and I, and, and either side on either side, which, which it also pains me to say, because of the fact that like 
it's the most I've ever felt like America has been split as far as team versus team. It's always, it was always, it's always been very um, uh, partisan. And even though they would try to be bipartisan, it's it's always, it's always partisan, but it just seems the most partisan that I, that I remember. And maybe just I'm getting older. I pay attention a lot more. I don't know. But do you see that inside of when you're talking to people, how their uh, political beliefs? uh, Yeah. Look, I live in LA. And, you know, I would say, you know, I'm not, not to speak about anybody that I have confidential vows with, but I will say that politics and the state of the world is definitely part of people's experiences. And I'm experiencing that not just professionally, but with my friendships and with my personal relationships, like everyone is extremely preoccupied with their beliefs and their knowledge of what's right and wrong and all of that and how that's stacking up against what's happening and locating themselves in this very part like bipartisan partisan situation where we have two parties and ideologically, I think is what you're talking about. Like there are these huge ideological differences and, you know, I think there were always these sort of like, I think it was a bit of PR because I think, Frankly, this country was built on slavery and oppression. And, you know, we can't deny that. That's a huge part of history that's been whitewashed and and ignored and in some cases erased. Uh, But I also think that, like, you know, a lot of that sort of polarity was always there. We just didn't focus on it. And now it seems to be that, like, this has become the the political climate. It's like it's very adversarial and very... um, you know, uh, yeah, it's very polarized. Very interesting to see in general. I mean, more so than just interested, uh, pretty invested to see what happens in November, how it all shakes out in general. Because either way, uh, I neither neither side, as I, I it does it seriously pains me to say that, but neither side is going to be happy with whatever happens. So we're gonna we're, we will we will find that out. But uh, as we wrap it up here with Miri Jedikin. Um, I will ask you this as far as where you where like how do people support you like what do they do like and you have a website that you're working with like if, if yeah. wants to know how to uh, help you know how to help what do they do um, well I have a website called therapy with Mary.com and on Instagram I'm just Mary Jedikin. Um you're welcome to follow me there you can engage in conversation with me I usually put posts up I'm not as frequent as I should be because I'm very busy Um, But I usually post about things that are coming up for me, either personally or professionally or both themes that I'm noticing. Um, You know, I just did a piece thing on healing because it's everybody's talking about healing and how do we heal. And I feel like sometimes when we have these buzzwords, they kind of float away from us. Like, Mm -hmm. what does that really mean? So I try to like break these things down as I see them. And again, not positioning myself as an expert, but just really through my lens. Um, And that's it for now. I'm trying to think of other ways. You know, I do some writing once in a while, but yeah. Do you ever think about getting back into maybe writing anything for uh, film or TV or, or is yeah, that? I, I definitely wanted like start in, in, you know, exploring mental health and, and movies, mental health and, and film and popular culture, because the two are so inextricably linked, especially in our culture, you know, America, like the United States and Canada, like, the West, as it were, we have long been very preoccupied with and privileged film 
and this medium for storytelling to the point where, you know, ask any kid who Thanos is and they'll know the comics. It's because of the movies, like movies permeate culture and culture permeates movies. And so I think that wrapped up in that is a very strong um, psychological undercurrent of like how we interact, what are our value systems, what are our beliefs? And I think like to speak to Marvel specifically, I think that's why Stan Lee and Jack Kirby were such geniuses was because they were always tapping into the cultural zeitgeist and exploring it and offering some idealized versions of it and really challenging the status quo in really accessible ways. And it's been going on for decades now. Now there's like an MCU and, you know, all these stories are being told and we're looking at villains like Thanos who just wants a clean slate. And it's sort of like, given the way of the world, I'm like, I kind of understand Thanos right now. I'm like, right. Right. it's like, why do, why are we into villains? Why, these are all archetypal structures that have been going on. You know, so that stuff fascinates me. I can nerd out on that for. I would love to do that with you at some point. Maybe the next, maybe the next run is like you breaking down like the inner workings of of some villains and what why why you think you kind of analyzing them. That'd be a lot of fun. Let's do it. I would love to do that. Let's I do it. it anyway. Yeah, we should do it. On, we'll do it on a show. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, Miri Jedikin, it's it's a pleasure to have you back. It really was nice. Oh, to it's, so nice to talk. it's like I never left. I know it's like you never left. So um, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me here today. And well, let's definitely do it again. Yeah, for sure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Miri Jedek, make sure you follow her. And for everybody else to let you know once again, all that you guys can subscribe here, Apple Podcasts, do the whole thing one-on-one with Christian Harloff. Helps us tremendously. Check out uh, all my movies with Dan Merle. We talk about somebody bringing back, bringing back physical media goes through all of this physical media he has guests on oh that's cool oh yeah cool. he had uh for the et episode he had uh, alex winter for the bill and ted episode it's a great oh, show. really great show so please go and check that out and for myself and miri jedekin see you next time